Welcome to the Air Force Starts Here podcast. I'm your host for this professional development podcast, Captain Keishel Trudell from the AATC Public Affairs team. As you know, this podcast is dedicated to bringing total force, big A airmen, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from the recruiting, training, and education worlds. In this episode, we celebrate Women's History Month during a conversation with four of the 10 women who first completed Air Force undergraduate pilot training in 1977. These trailblazers broke barriers, laying the foundation for all future female airmen. Retired Colonel Kathleen Kosan and retired Lieutenant Colonels Mary Donahue, Sandra Scott, and Mary Livingston reminisced on their experiences at Randolph during UPT Class 7708 from August 1976 to September of 1977, and the careers that they forged thereafter. They discuss challenges, roadblocks, successes, and the women who inspire them today. These women left their marks on the pages of history and opened doors for female pilots and airmen for generations to come. Don't miss their stories and the wisdom they share on the importance of determination, mentorship, and wingmanship during this Women's History Month episode of the Air Force Starts Here podcast. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. We're so excited to have you here um, at the Air Force Starts Here podcast. This episode is really exciting. It's uh, Women's History Month 2021. What better way to honor some of the most incredible women in the military and our Air Force who kind of started the legacy for what it is to be a a female airman and a a female pilot. And so we've got some amazing women on the call today from the first ever uh, undergraduate pilot training class, Um, but we've got Mary Livingston uh, out there in Indiana. We've got Mary Donahue, who's in Cape Cod right now, Uh, Kathy Cosand in Napa, California, and Sandy Scott, who's in Oregon. How are you ladies doing? Well, (laughs) doing well, thank you. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation and just tell a little bit about what your experiences were um, all those years ago through now in your entire careers. What does it mean to you guys when, when you're there in the moment and you're being told you're gonna to be the first and you're gonna do something historic, but you're just doing something you're passionate about at the time. And, and now all these years later, we're, we're celebrating you and, and the legacy that you brought. How does that make you feel then and now? At the March 5th uh, National Museum of the Air Force, Uh, dedication ceremony, that really was um, quite an amazing experience in that I'm sure that that uh, adjective is going to be overused today, but I got a chance to meet um, Samantha Weeks, who was the Thunderbird pilot and various other uh, aspects of her military career. And, you know, and, and she was admiring me as I was admiring her because she carried on with excellence, professionalism, and you know, she was exactly the type of person I would have wanted to be in a future Air Force rather than being a trailblazer. I think each of us could say that we would have loved to have had some of the opportunities of 
the women that they have today. And it just is mind boggling to think that we started that first step. That's truly incredible. You're totally right. Um, just me sitting here right now, uh, looking up to you guys and, and seeing that, you know, because of the barriers you broke, there's, there's all these incredible women serving right next to me that um, I get to see as, you know, we're, right now we're at about 21% of the military active duty air force is, is female and definitely wasn't the time for you guys. So what did that look like? You know, the, the male dominance that, that exists now uh, is, is definitely way, way different than it was for your time. So being in that class together, uh, how was that? I think we took it on as a, as a test, test group and there were actually 10, 10 of us ladies in the class, um, nine active duty and I was the lone reservist. And then the second class of women um, came about six months later and there were nine again active duty and one Air National Guard lady, Marilyn Kuhn. I, I, I think that um, we took it all kind of in, stri in stride uh, first, we came together in the flight screening program down in Hondo, and we had to go through a lot of extra tests that the guys didn't normally have to go through. And I think they were building a database on on what we were, you know, capable of doing. Um, some of the things that they do now with, uh, you know, your hand-eye coordination tests and that kind of thing. And I, I think we just we all just wanted to be there. It, I don't think any of us really wanted, cared that it was the first class. We just all wanted to do our passion. And we were given the opportunity to follow that dream. And we just wanted to get through it. This is Sandy. And um, I agree with Kathy. It, I, I wasn't there to be in the first. Um, in fact, I didn't even think about that. There'd been plenty of pilots. And so uh, this woman first thing, is something that came a lot, lot later. Yeah, yeah, they did say some things about it while we were at UPT, we went through the photo shoots and all of that, but it, it was still, we were doing a job and it was a job that was being done by, by many people. And uh, I was just glad that I was able to, to have the opportunity to do that job. Yeah, um, I don't think we thought about being first. And I think um, they did a good job of having just one photo day and saying after that, there'd be no more. So there wasn't pressure that way. But I think the pressure that happened was internal pressure. I don't think any one of us wanted to fail because if that were the case, they would use that as an excuse not to let others do it. So we, that was pressure that was put on by ourselves. No one put that on us. But I think all of us sort of felt that, that you know, we had to make it because if we didn't make it, they would use that as a decision to not let anyone else uh, ever try it again. And, and I would have to say, this is Mary Livingston, that that is the reason, though, we didn't want to be necessarily in the first class. It was very, very ever present in our minds, because as Mary Donahue said, if we failed, that would be a reflection on the other women in our class and also women that may want to follow in our footsteps. So granted, we didn't look at ourselves as trailblazers so much is that we just wanted to do well for the women that followed us. And in some of the, the stuff I was looking at in the stories and the different sets of 
of heritage that's being brought up lately with um, the Trailblazer dedication in the Air Education and Training Command's uh, headquarters conference room, which I know, uh, I believe two of you were there for. And then again, with the exhibit, um, I saw that someone commented that, you know, there were instructor pilots that were openly against what was going on. Um, so how, how did that fuel that as well? Instructor pilots who were assigned to me I was assigned to them. I guess that's a better way of looking at it. I didn't have any issue with that, but I flew with a couple, you know, once once in a while, a lot you fly, you fly with other instructors um, that were sort of like that. And I know there was a lot of discussion by the T-38 instructors saying, well, maybe they're just going to stop them after T-37 because, you know, obviously they can fly this slower plane, but we can't let them fly jets. So, um, so it sort of was ongoing, but Myself, personally, I had excellent instructors and they, none of my instructors came across that way to me at all. This is uh, Kathy Kosan. I agree with Mary Donahue. I, I kind of knew that maybe, you know, there was some, some talk, but I didn't experience that with the instructors that I flew with. But I, I remember hearing um, some of the, uh, the discussions like what um, Mary Donahue stated, but I didn't have that experience. And this is Sandy, and neither did I. Um, and I'd probably have to say I was probably naive enough that I, it, by that time, I'd already been in the Air Force uh, three years, and I had learned to just um, kind of overlook a lot of things because that was the only way that you survived. You just decided that you're not going to focus on it. Oh, I'm not getting my chance. I'm not getting to do this, or or uh, I'm being put over here and I'm being looked at this way. I. I had um, chosen to not look at a lot of those things. So I'm very aware that I was probably just naive in that sense. But I think the instructors that I had, they were very encouraging. Uh, some of them, I would even say they were honored to get to fly with us because they went, wow. And, uh, you know, um, and we'd get compared to their wives. And they would some, I, I know that my instructor in, in a good way, you know, he'd say, you know, my wife says she wants to do this. Maybe I ought to let her try this. You know, things like that, that I saw as very um, encouraging and uh, definitely supportive. You know, um, when you first get a student, you do focus on what you might consider to be external uh, attributes of that student. But when you start flying with that student, you start concentrating on their abilities and for them to exceed and to excel because that reflects on you as an instructor. So just like the other women here, my instructors were excellent. And um, my T-38 instructor just recently died of COVID, uh, Bruce Ott. And, you know, and I would just like to, you know, say a little something in honor of him that, you know, he was always proud, as Sandy said, of flying with that first group of female pilots and being an instructor. And so I, I just wanna honor him for that. Ditto. Um, you know, first I went to uh, Columbus Air Force Base in the uh, pre-pilot instructor training program. And in some respects that was more challenging because none of them had ever seen a female pilot and so that was a culture shock for them and somewhat of a culture shock for me. And, you know, at some point in time, if you and I ever want to sit down and just relate some humorous stories 
that would be it. But as Sandy said, um, as well as being that first group of women pilots, there was also fear because we were women flying in a male dominated area. And some women did feel threatened by that. And so, you know, um, ag again, um, I, I would have to say that my uh, instructors were excellent. And I didn't particularly want to fly a T-37 out of pilot training, but I'll tell you what, God knew what I should fly because I absolutely loved flying Mary Donahue, that sm slow jet, but there's no other aircraft that could spin like that aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> what is, um, what, so I know all of you guys, you know, while the flying piece is com completely, you know, the, the thing that makes all of us super excited and, and the thing that propelled women in the Air Force forward. Um, but not only that, you guys were, were women officers, you were leaders, you were having to, to deal with that potential side of it as well, because flying and leadership in, in the Air Force as an officer, you have your, your career path, but you also have the leading of troops. And I know you guys had all long successful careers. So were there any points in, in that that had parallel experiences or different experiences than while you were students? I know that a lot of times um, when I start, started flying the 141, it's a large airplane and um, you were subjected or you could be subjected to a lot of no notice um, check rides just because there were flight examiners over in Europe trying to get back to the States. And because I flew a lot of those missions, I, I had an, a, an exorbitant number of, of not, no notice check rides and everybody wanted to see how a woman could handle a big airplane. And it got to the point where the people that I was flying with the, in my squadron, they started, started protecting me. And um, they'd actually tell the guys, you know what? She's already had two check rides on this trip. Why don't you just go sit down? sit downstairs and just stay out of our hair. She's been under enough pressure. And I mean, I had, I had a stack of check rides and all of them, you know, were, were Q1s, uh, no problems or anything like that. Um, and after a while they started diminishing, thank goodness. Um, but I was heavily scrutinized more, I think from people outside of my unit than inside my unit because they were just, they were curious you know, and they were naysayers. And uh, hopefully, you know, I was able to, to change their opinion of that. And uh, they could see that a, a little girl, you know, 114 pounds at the time, you know, could handle a big airplane as long as you learn the techniques, um, a lot of the techniques um, to do that. For example, I had a lot of problems getting all four thrust reversers into reverse um, at the beginning. But the beauty of that was is that nowhere in the landing data is it required that you have any of the thrust reversers out. So I would always use that as my defense that, you know, hey, I don't have to. And I learned, you know, I would take the, the middle two thrust reversers, put them out, and then I'd work on one and four until I actually learned the technique of, of putting my, my hand kind of behind me and, and then being able to raise up all four of them and then pushing. But it was, it was a learning process on, on learning how to develop that technique because I was also a, a smaller frame. I had to sit up higher in the seat. I had to sit further forward 
than a lot of my male counterparts. So that was kind of an interesting thing. So once, you know, some of that stuff got ironed out, um, a lot of the criticism kind of went down. A lot of people wanted to see how we were doing once we got into our final assignments. And, you know, you just had to accept it with good cheer. And after a while, I mean, people are busy. You're in the Air Force, you know, you've got your mission. And, you know, to take extra time out to be, you know, on an additional sortie, that's tough. And so really very quickly, it, it died down because we all proved ourselves. Flying the 135, we didn't get to fly that often. We were sitting alert a lot. Uh, so we flew, uh, we were on alert probably about 10 days a month. And then you had the days that you planned. And so uh, a lot of the flying that we got to do was with the Accelerated Ace program. Where I got to fly that slow T-37 that I absolutely loved also, Mary. And um, I got more time in that just about than I did in the 135 for quite a while. Uh, but it was just because, um, so I think it was just proving ourselves in, in all ways. It wasn't just as um, pilots, but we had to prove ourselves as officers. And um, that was a very important aspect that now all of us, other than Kathy Kosan, had basically been in the military before. And we had various uh, jobs. And so we had some of that behind us. But it, it was totally different once we got into the cockpit, of course. And, but I think they were looking at us not only for our flying ability, but also just how we handled, you know, is she going to be an aircraft commander? Can we make her an instructor? Everything was looked at as, as a new piece that had to be um, overcome and then accepted. And you think that uh, in all your guys' experience, that was something that that did happen, it was over, overcome and accepted or were there various um, trials that you might've faced? This is Mary Donahue. I think um, SAC really, I don't think was that acceptable of females. Everyone I flew with initially, one of the, the hardest approaches in a KC-135 is a rudder power out three engine approach because it takes a, you know, a lot of foot pressure to hold the uh, aircraft straight. I mean, I could do that approach better than anybody because there was not one person who flew with me who didn't require me to do that approach you know, to show them that I couldn't do it. Uh, um, I also, um, I had a navigator when I was in Stana Valley, and he just told me one day, he was, he was crazy. I am not going to stand up for you anymore. I'm sick of it, he says. I'm in the bar, and I'm always talking to these people that claim they've flown with you, and you can't fly. And I am so sick of having to defend you to everybody. I'm just not going to do it anymore, you know? So it was just a very strange environment. Because in SAC, you fly with... Uh, a crew. You don't fly with other people. You fly because you're full alert and everything. So you're always flying with the same crews. So people really didn't know you except the, you know, the people that you flew with. And I, I just thought SAC was very strange. I love the mission because it was basically a combat mission. No, I did not like sitting alert at all, but I did get to fly. I got a lot of T-38 flying time. And yes, I did fly the T-37 when they took the T-38 away. So I have a lot of T-37 and T-38 time in the accelerated co-pilot enrichment program. And probably I have more hours in there than I have in a tank. And, and just to add to that, I was actually a detachment commander at Grissom Air Force Base as an air crew, um, you know, as an aircraft uh, enrichment program, accelerated, you know, what did they call that? The accelerated co-pilot enrichment program for yeah. uh -huh. the uh, strategic air command pilots. 
And that's how I knew Mary at Grissom is because that she was stationed as an aircraft commander at that time, Mary. Yes. yes. And, you know, um, and it was, it was fun flying with the SAC co-pilots because we were able to uh, expand our normal flying much more cross country than what we normally would do in a uh, undergraduate pilot training environment. So that was always a fun break as well. Just letting Sandy, you and Mary know as well. So during that initial training, uh, I'm assuming you guys got relatively close and leaned on each other a lot, uh, as do a lot of people in UPT at any stage um, from, you know, when it first started through today. Um, but from there, you know, how was that, that friendship, that relationship, that uh, fellow student relationship there? And, and then even how it might have continued to, if you guys kept up at all throughout your careers or first time uh, chatting with each other again now, how has that relationship been? Too little. Um, I, I think if, if at some point people say, you know, what would you have changed differently? I think I would, I, I know that I would have reached out to the other nine women a lot more. Uh, at that time, we were all at different bases and even for the second class and third class, there weren't that many of us. So we were, there was like one per base or, uh, and we were all handling the issues that we had to handle. And I so wish that we would have uh, kept better in touch. I did get to keep a little bit in touch with Mary Livingston, but more so with Carol, but not a whole lot. And the only reason I was able to keep to Carol is because I got to meet her over in Guam a couple of times and she was from Oregon. But I, I certainly wish that we had fostered those friendships uh, more so. I think it would have made our lives easier um, just because, you know, as, as we decided to have families for those that did, we went, oh yeah, I had that problem, you know, and, or this came up. Um, and we didn't, we did not, we did not do that. I don't think any of the 10 of us really were really close to any of the others. Um, and I'll let them go ahead and speak to it. Well, you have to remember, uh, Captain Keishel, that communication is much easier today than what it was then. I mean, if you made a long distance phone call, you waited till the weekend after 7 p.m. when the rates went down. <laughs> Yeah, because it cost money, lots of money. <laughs> we were, none of us were probably that rich. And, you, you know, there wasn't an internet. You know, the internet didn't really come into, into play until about the time most of us retired. So as Sandy said, yes, to go back, it would have been delightful to have stayed in contact. But it would also have been extraordinarily difficult, given the fact that we were all different time zones, completely different missions. Um, it, it, you know, it, it would have just been difficult, even in air training command, where I got to know a couple of the other female instructor pilots, uh, our communication was very, very limited because communication was difficult. You just didn't pick up your cell phone and text somebody. Yeah, I can, I, mean, I sent a couple of letters because I had uh, Carol's uh, address, but then once people left and got new assignments, there wasn't a phone number you could call them at because yes. people didn't have a cell a number that stayed with you. So after the initial uh, year, maybe we we didn't have any numbers to take with us. So mm -hmm. it was uh, it was it was a real effort to be able to do that. 
Uh, and, and it's just the way life was. It wasn't uh, in, in just with the, the 10 of us. It was just the way that life was. And I think that that's probably, if there's anything that I could give a new officer coming into the Air Force or anyone just coming into a professional job of any sort, is to keep your friends and to have those friends that you have professional and have those friends that you have socially uh, and, and keep them. Because even after you have a family, and my family is very, very important to me, but my family's not always going to be there for everything. And I can't expect them to be. Uh, my daughter right now is in the Air Force and it was great. She got to come and, and to enjoy some of this, but it was a, almost a fluke that she was able to do that. We had to work really hard to make it happen. And it, she's not able to do a lot of those things that maybe other people that were not in the Air Force uh, can have their kids. And I mean, when I was growing up, uh, my relatives, my cousins, we got together 10, 15, 20 times a summer and then throughout the rest of the year. And that's not the way that the world is right now. So those things have changed. And, um, but it's still very important to, um, now that it is easier, especially to go ahead and to make sure that you uh, not only pick those uh, people that you know uh, that are with you, that are your peers, but also those that you may be able to mentor and bring up because that it's, um, I think, and I'll get off the subject here a little bit because I'd love to hear from the rest of you. Because um, we were talking about at, at one point, I was talking with my daughter about somebody was saying, well, you've got to have a mentor. You need somebody to mentor you. And do you get that, Captain Cashel? You know, Definitely. do you have a mentor? The first and, thing you to do. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's not about you finding a mentor. It's about you mentoring somebody else. And then your mentors will come along. And uh, it's, it's about the job you get. It's about just your personality. All those things go together, but you just don't get to go out and say, oh, I need a mentor. I'm going to go pick one off the shelf. Um, <laughs> you, uh, you work with people and, and then they go, hmm, I think I'd like to work with this person. And, but the wonderful thing is you get to do the same thing to others, whether they be a uh, a peer or whether they be someone that is um, maybe that you outrank or even you can in some ways you can mentor uh, even those that are superior to you just by letting uh, them know how much you appreciate their qualities and and their leadership. I'd like to get on, on the mentoring thing uh, real quick. Um, I belong to a women military aviators and we're on Facebook and we, we try to mentor um, just about anybody that has any questions. I just spent uh, 45 minutes the other day speaking to a young lady who's 27 years old who still wants to come into the uh, military and go to pilot training. And so I gave her several of the avenues. Um, but back to one of the original questions there. Um, I guess I felt I felt a little strange being, you know, part of the 10. First of all, I was the second lieutenant. I had not been in the military before. I had just came straight out of ROTC. I was the youngest. And some of the gals were married. So that that and older. And so, you know, that kind of put them in a little bit different social category than I was in. So I 
I tended to hang out with, with the, the people, um, some of the, the gentlemen in the class ahead of me, just because I didn't want to hang out with the, with the guys in, in our class. And so I had a, a different relationship there um, with, with the other ladies in our class. However, I think that I always tried to keep up with where everybody was stationed and um, kind of kept track of, you know, what their careers were doing, how they were doing, um, what they were doing to kind of try to keep in focus on what I was doing because with the reserves, I stayed at the same base for 25 years in the same airplane. Um, ended up, you know, in the 141, flew the 141A and B models and ended up logging about 6,500 hours in, in the airplane and having a, a great bunch of guys that I, that I worked with. But also when new women came along, I, I got to fly with them and I was expected to mentor them and talk to them. And no matter whether or not they were on active duty or in the reserves. So that was, that was kind of interesting from there, um, from that, as far as, you know, my relationship with the other ladies in the class. I think some of the, some of the issues are the three young ladies with us today were in a different section from me and they were so um, a dichotomy that you didn't really get to interact with the other five ladies that were in the other section because you were totally on different schedules the whole time. I bumped into Kathy LaSauce at uh, Hondo, Texas or Medina where we were staying the day she got out of her car, we met in the parking lot. We've been friends for the entire time. And the only other one I was probably close to would be uh, Mary Livingston because I, you know, Mary was both at Grissom with me and at uh, the Air Force Academy. And mm -hmm. once I, I went down in my eight, little ACE program and went into Columbus and she was stationed at Columbus on over and, you know, see her and Bob uh, for dinner. But other than that, I, we really didn't interact at all um, until probably recently. First thing for me would be that Women's International Conference I went to, I don't know, it was about five years ago, 2016. Yeah, it was to me, it was tremendous because it was awe-inspiring. We were not mentored. Uh, we were just treated like, you know, we're there, we have to be there, that we have to put up with us. And to see the mentoring that was going on at that, con not at the conference, but by what was, I was found out at the conference, how much mentoring was going among, on among women, I found eye-opening. And I was so thrilled about that. Um, it, it just caught my attention so much that there was tremendous mentoring going on. Because a lot of times, back in my day, women were not good to women. They were almost like they felt they were competitive with them. So um, to see that happening and in such a overwhelming amount of mentoring, so to speak, it just, it just opened my eyes. I was very thrilled about that. Yeah, that was one thing at uh, this Mary Livingston that we saw at Randolph this summer. We had a luncheon and um, was privileged to meet uh, General Levitt. And I don't know who Kathy met and who Sandy met at their tables, but just listening to their life experiences and there were other women at the table who were also excellent in their careers. You know, just listening to these women and how they mentor other women, just like Mary Donahue said, and how they have been mentored. Uh, what a sense of teamwork and um, kinship that the women have with each other. And, you know, if we helped start that, then yay us, you know, because that is, it's awesome to see women supporting one another, because as Mary Donahue said, 
at, at some points and times, it did feel that we were more competing against one another because we were always being compared rather than helping one another. Yeah, I, I never in my entire career flew with another woman that I can remember. I, I could be wrong on that. I'm a little old now. And so I maybe don't have all the facts, but I can't remember ever flying with another woman as a pilot. I did, uh, I did have other crew members. I never had a female uh, boom operator. Uh, I did, uh, and I never had a female navigator. So on my crew in the tanker, I did not. When I got to the academy and I flew the uh, de Havilland Twin Otter, I did not get to fly with another woman because I was the only one. Uh, I did in a sailplane, but normally, I. I, I don't even think I got to fly with a woman there because normally the women flew with other guys because they flew with the, the football players because the football players had to have somebody small so that they could fit two people in the airplane. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and there weren't any other women when I got into the guard. So I never flew with another woman, but I did. Uh, and so my mentoring was not so much that, but maybe more the enlisted, because I did get to work with uh, some of the uh, enlisted women uh, and also just mentoring the men at the same time. Uh, and I, uh, so I, I tried not to make that distinction because I didn't want to think of myself as a female pilot. I wanted to think of myself as a pilot because that's how I wanted other people to think of me. And uh, I think it'll be absolutely wonderful that someday, hopefully in the near future, th that many of the accolades that we're now getting will be able to, to go aside. It's kind of like, um, it, it just, it's gonna take time. And uh, yeah, it's been a long time already, but it, it's probably gonna take more time. It's Kathy, Kathy Kosan here. Um... Just a shout out to my daughter, since this is Women's uh, History Month and talking about women pilots. Um, Travis Air Force Base is uh, sending out an all-female crew this weekend with my daughter as the aircraft commander in C-5s and they're gonna go fly three legs with an all-female crew. So yay, my daughter, Megan Camp. <laughs> all right. She's carrying it on for all of us. That's so, so exciting to hear the the transition between you know never really having any crew members that were female to now doing the all-female flights and uh, anyone that watched the Super Bowl the same thing happened there with the the female uh, flight commanders for the Super Bowl flyover this past year and everything and um, Marielle you brought up General General Levitt and I actually shared with you guys recently this photo here at in at Randolph in front of the Taj Mahal that's pretty iconic of Randolph Air Force Base. And um, it's a picture of six female general officers who all work uh, in air education and training command right now. And, you know, in, in a time uh, when you guys were doing what you were doing and paving the way, you weren't really looking up to female officers and general officers, women that you could see them so you could see yourself getting to that stage. And uh, just, you know, for people like myself and, and other you know, whether you're in the Air Force or maybe want to get recruited, whatever it is, just, I guess, to, to you guys, what did, what did that picture of six general officers all standing together in that iconic shot by the Taj um, here at, in one MAGCOM of the Air Force, 
making ways with with two major three-star generals and 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 four brigadier general um, brigadier generals that kind of just are paving the way and and doing the work and continuing your guys's legacy and that mentorship and um yeah I, I just was curious uh what that might have inspired in you when you saw it mary livingston one of the things and uh, sandy scott and mary donahue they were stationed at the air force academy so they may have had this opportunity as well. But at various times, the WASPs would come and visit the Air Force Academy. Sandy, Mary Donahue, did you ever get a chance to meet any of the uh, WIMA pilots of World War II? I did get to meet one of the WASPs. Uh, the, the person that, the female person that I made the most, uh, I guess, uh, impact upon me was Grace Hopper, however. Um, she just blew me away. Uh, and she was a, a naval uh, uh, communicator and uh, she was an excellent speaker and she was in her 80s uh, when she actually came to the Air Force Academy. Uh, so uh, I, I don't, uh, I, I, I remember that more so than, I did get to meet the WASP at several, several different times, but not just a, a kind of like high and goodbye type thing. Well, I actually, uh, my husband and I were privileged to host a couple at our house one evening. Oh, wow. And it's interesting because, you know, uh, just recently on the uh, National Museum of the Air Force, I think is they won, they had a uh, feature on um, an Asian woman pilot. And I was looking at that. And I remember one of those wasps telling me a story that uh, this, you know, one of their you know, fellow pilots who was happened to be Asian American had engine trouble and had to do a forced landing in a farmer's field. Well, the farmer sees this Asian looking woman coming out of the aircraft and immediately thinking that he's being attacked. Mm. This is during World War II. <laughs> so he, he, he basically captures her. <laughs> until she is able to convince him that she is a woman pilot in the Air Force, which of course, you know, the Army Air Corps, which of course, you know, he didn't know much about. So I'm thinking, I'm looking at that picture, Captain Trudell, of these women general officers, and this is just AETC, standing in front of the Taj Mahal. And I'm thinking back to this woman who's standing in a field, not even able to convince somebody that she is part, even though she wasn't part of the, you know, official military organization, she was affiliated with the military. What an incredible transformation there has been over, you know, the, the last 80 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can, uh, I think um, there was at one point when the academy and I, when I was there that they were looking at getting ultralights as part of their program. And uh, they had several different ultralight companies come in. And I was there as the executive officer from down on the, on the flight field, but we all had on sweaters. We weren't wearing, uh, we had sweaters or jackets. And uh, somebody said, well, Sandy, why didn't you take this one up? And I, I said, I'd, I'd like to do that. And the guy looked at me, he knew, but because um, my boss had said she's a pilot, but the guy then comes running over that had built this ultralight. And he's going, what is she doing taking my airplane? What is she doing taking my ultralight up? And he goes, 
you know, he's going, I told her 55, stay alive. It's okay. And this guy was concerned the whole time because he had no idea that I was a pilot. And, and this was, you know, this was after we'd gone through and all that other kind of stuff. And so he's just, he's going, oh, oh, I didn't know. And so he just made the assumption that they've just let me go out and taxi. And he says, but she took off, she took off. I, I like the fact that uh, with the generals, that when you think about the leadership being the top 2% is how many women are the top 2%, even though they only comprise 20% of the Air Force. So yeah. that picture of the six ladies standing there kind of went to me, went, we've got some great people representing, you know, women in the Air Force. And I, one of the things I noticed that they were half, I believe, uh, uh, half of them were rated and half of them weren't, which, right. uh, which was also, you know, it used to be, well, I only got to be a general if you were a pilot. And I think that, that the Air Force has changed in, in that way also. So that yes, it is important, uh, you know, flying is our mission, but it takes all fields to go ahead to accomplish that mission. So a lot of you had time at the Academy. Um, what was that like? Uh, I mean, the Academy obviously wasn't always even accepting of women as students. So what were some experiences there? Well, I didn't have any experience at the Air Force Academy, but just to put things in perspective, the women started uh, becoming cadets at the Air Force Academy at the same time that we started pilot training in the, in the summer and fall of 1976. So it was also new to the Academy. Like I get a lot of questions like, well, why didn't you go to the Academy? And I said, well, because they didn't have women at the Academy until 1976. And that's when I started pilot training. So I'll, I'll stay out of this now because I didn't have those other experiences. This is Mary uh, Donahue. I was assigned to the Academy twice. I had got assigned to the Academy to be in the mathematics department in June of 76. And, and then I was accepted for pilot training. So I had a 54 day assignment at the Academy and we had, I taught calculus, which every uh, cadet has to have calculus. So we had had actually, by the time I left in early August, I guess it was early August, we had had our first exam and they give the same exam to every cadet and they're all graded by the instructors and a, an instructor grades just one problem. So everybody's problem is graded exactly the same. And so before I left, I tend to leave every job late. I put on the board after we had done all the things, I said, just, just wanted you guys to notice that three of the top five scores in this calculus exam were women. I just put an exclamation point. That's the last I saw, they saw because I had left over that weekend to go to pilot training. So but the first women, you know, as cadets had had a lot of problems, but they were very um, strong and they were good and they, they needed to, to be there. Thought it was a good experience. When I came back, and that was 76, when I came back to the academy in 81, five years later, I mean, there were a lot more uh, females there and they were a lot more accepted. Yeah, I, uh, Mary Livingston, I taught in the uh, Department of Economics and flew attached in the motorized glider, the TG7A, and uh, also flew the 233, the sailplane. So I identify with Sandy in the fact that they wanted somebody lightweight to fly with the football players. 
and <laughs> yeah, because of the weight limitations. And the same thing was true in the motorized glider. And um, by that time, you know, we had had an assignment underneath our, you know, experience. And I was actually on my third assignment because I had been an instructor at Columbus Air Force Base, then a pilot instructor at uh, Randolph Air Force Base, and then um, joined my husband at the Air Force Academy teaching economics. And then I did have a second uh, assignment there with the uh, T-41s, which was the flight screening aircraft um, as my primary assignment. And, you know, as Kathy uh, Kosan just mentioned, you know, it was getting to be much more accepted as you went further in your career and particularly in the training command because that's where women join. And the same thing true at the Air Force Academy. They were used to seeing young women there. So in that respect, I admire Mary Donahue and uh, Kathy Kosan and Sandy because they didn't have that same influx of young women in all the different career fields. So in Air Education and Training Command, you did see more young women. And so I think it became much more acceptable than maybe in some of the other commands. I was gonna say that what, when I was at the academy, and this is getting off on a different subject. So if anybody else wants to go with this one, please finish first. One of the, um, one of the things when I was there at the academy was just looking at the issue of um, the limitations that women have when they become a mother. And uh, the, uh, the, the foresight and um, professionalism that the commander that I had showed, because I, I had hired uh, uh, one of the other uh, females. It was the first time she was going to be coming into the unit. And uh, she showed up quite scared, I believe. I have never talked to her about that yet. But uh, she said, I got to see the commander. And I was her sponsor. And I said, okay, is everything all right? And she goes, yeah. And I said, you're pregnant. She goes, yeah, I am. And I said, okay, it's going to be okay. As I immediately started thinking about now I can't fly or how are we going to do this? But I, I said, it's going to be okay. Because I had been thinking about that. I had been married that time about 13 years and I wanted to start a family. And those were the issues that I knew were alive and well out there. And uh, my commander just did the most fabulous job that he could have. He introduced her the next day to the rest of the unit. And he said, I, I'd like you all to meet Captain so-and-so. And she's got some pretty good news for us. She's going to be a mother. And it's no different than when Ray broke his leg and was dismissed for nine months. And that was the end of the issue. And there was just like, no, nothing else. Everything else just kind of flowed as it was because it had been put in a perspective that was different than you're not going to be able to work. It was a lot of people can't work. Denif happens. And um, it's not just a, a pregnancy. So that was uh, totally different than happened to me later when I did get pregnant. But it was so comforting, and um, I just like to really thank Colonel Shaw for his uh, for the fantastic way that he handled the situation, and um, I think showed a lot of other people because I'm sure that most of the men that time uh, we never know who we affect, but I'm sure that every other man that was in our unit at that time it it was there wasn't an issue 
it just became part of the job. Speaking of uh, pregnancy and everything, the first time I got pregnant, um, with about seven weeks later, I had to take my cholera shot and I did not want to take a live serum shot. And so I went in into the flight surgeon and he grounded me immediately and I, I was not a happy camper. Um, my second pregnancy though, um, in 1987, I was at Altus and there was a, a young flight surgeon, very progressive, and I went to him and um, they had just allowed the, um, the application for waivers. And so I said, I wanna get a waiver to fly. And he said, why do you wanna do that? And I looked at him and I said, am I sick? I said, I'm still cleaning toilets. I'm still mowing the yard. Why can't I fly airplanes? And um, he said, right answer. And he goes, okay, let's, uh, let's try to get this done. And so he helped me with the paperwork. And before we knew it, um, the waiver went up to whatever headquarters it needed to go up to. And, the, and I got the first waiver to continue to fly pregnant to four, uh, 24 weeks. So I continued until the 17th of January of 1988 to fly. I flew my last local and um, my wing commander was kind of against it, but he was kind of a, a portly man. And he goes, well, how is she going to, you know, handle the yoke? And I kind of went, geez, he's in a size 52 flight suit. I'm only in a 42, you know, who do you think can pull the yoke back further? But I didn't say that to him, but I kind of said it to myself. And um, the guys in my unit were great. They were very supportive. I couldn't fly overseas, um, but I could stay stateside and I could fly. I could go in the simulator and I could keep my, my landing currency up to that point, which to me, made my requalification after, after I had my daughter um, so much better, uh, so much quicker because I, didn't, I, I haven't lost um, some of the thought process and everything and uh, that would require nine months of being grounded along with a six week recovery period after C-sections. So that went a lot quicker. And um, I know, you know, a lot of other people, you know, they just kind of hid their pregnancies, but I decided that I wanted to go forth with the paperwork so that if other people wanted to do it, it was already established and it was already, had already been done at least once. So that's why I, I kind of wanted to do it. Mary Livingston here. I will say that Air Education and Training Command hadn't heard of you when I was pregnant. That's all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> well that said uh, it sounds like a lot of a lot of you with with kiddos out there stayed stayed air force centric um i know kathy you your daughter's a pilot but who else has more more flying or air force or military blood that follows suited with you well, I also have a son who spent 10 years in the Air Force Reserves also. So he was a KC-135 pilot at Grissom, just like Mary and, and Mary. So um, he got af out after his 10 years and uh, is now flying for uh, American Airlines. And I got a new grandbaby on the way with him in May. So, and he actually uh, met a gal on one of his AeroVac trips uh, from Minneapolis and uh, she latched on to him and uh, they got married and now expecting their first. So, so 
two out of two. They both flew. I have um, my daughter's an active duty uh, officer right now who hopes to uh, make it a career. She's presently stationed at the Pentagon uh, and is going to be heading. Her and her husband are both in logistics and they're going to be heading to Korea this year. And I so just met them and they are really neat. <laughs> <laughs> so is your daughter. <laughs> and yours, Mary, yours too. <laughs> <laughs> it was really great to get to have some of our kids at some of these events. Uh, it made it very special. Um, and it, uh, so I, I really uh, was very glad that that was able to happen. What was the experience like getting to put that flight suit on again when you came here for the building or the room dedication? Awesome. <laughs> I was just impressed that I could fit in my old flight suit. <laughs> uh, it, it, it was. It was definitely um, a moment uh, to just remember. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm here. And um, it was definitely, definitely, definitely worth it. I'm so sorry that Mary didn't get to come up and fly with us, but it was great to have her there. And yeah, so it was, uh, it was, uh, a thrill of a lifetime. Yeah. Mary Livingston here. Just being back at Randolph Air Base, where I was stationed for a couple of years, walking to the Sim building, walking from the 557th, you know, wing, which is where I flew the T-37s, and just walking the base, the same steps I had walked on it years earlier with my husband and daughter, was just an absolute thrill. And yeah. You know, the I, I just have to shout out to the whole public affairs office. What a tremendous job you all did in organizing that and, and running it. It was perfection, at least from this person's point of view. Thank you. Did shout I. out. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I think, um, hey, well, I, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, that's what matters. You guys were the guests. <laughs> you did a great job. <laughs> I think um, I, I would like to just take a, a brief moment to also, as I had said earlier, that being one of the first females was not something that was big to me. Um, I just finished uh, reading a book. Some of you may have seen the movie, uh, Hidden Figures, and we were, and, and I accept that, that people have looked up to us and I'm very grateful uh, that they were able to do that and that they are able to do that. But I think about the people like my mom and the, the, the mothers that in a totally different world did the best that they could do. Uh, and then uh, such as the women that, that came into the space program uh, and not only had to put up with um, not being able, I, I totally think that that's one of the best parts of the whole movie is uh, when she has to run to find a bathroom, but it's not because, uh, because I can relate to it, but not because <clears throat> she was a female so much as just because she was black and a female. And I just can't wait until the day when those different discriminating factors don't make any difference. Yes, that's something that's super important to uh, Webb and all of our top three leaders in the Department of Defense right now. And um, 
just been really amazing to be part of the generation that wants to make that change. And it took the, the, the men and women that came before us and, and what you guys have done to continue to make that positive growth. So thank you for being that, that uh, initial steps for all of us ladies. And um, before I go ahead and don't take any more of your time, it's, it's just any final words you might have to someone considering, considering a life of flying or a life in the course or uh, no matter what it is, uh, a young lady that that wants to, to do something that might not be seen as something that that a woman would be doing. What would you guys like to, to say as your final remarks to to those aspiring people? Follow your dreams. They can do anything that they want to do if they put their mind to it. And they just have to want to do it. And you know, even if they have to put up with a few rough edges, because even though systemically there may not be a problem at this point in time, you still have individuals that are whatever they are. So just put up with what you need to put up with and don't let that take away from your dream of doing what you want to do, because there's so many opportunities that are open to women today. I'd have to say just be disciplined uh, because uh, we were probably all our worst enemies as happens with any time, if there were those days that we just weren't sure, we'd have to kick ourselves. And uh, so to, to have that faith in, in ourselves that uh, we could do what we needed to do to get the job done. And, and I would agree totally with what everybody else said. And to go along with that, maintain your sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> And the other thing is, you know, men are also going through challenges and as well. So being part of a team is critically important. And if you have any doubts whatsoever, please get in contact with any of us. And we will be, we would love to talk to you and try to encourage you and um, hope that you can achieve your dreams. Yes. Amen. Yep. Well, can't conclude it any better than that. It's that uh, wingmanship mentorship culture of uh, this big Air Force family. So thank you so much, ladies, for your time and, and being here for us today on this podcast episode. You're welcome. Yes. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Women's History Month edition of the Air Force Starts Here podcast. Thank you for your subscribe, stream, or download. As a reminder, you can follow Air Education and Training Command and the AATC command team on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. You can catch up on all the latest news across the command on our website at aatc.af.mil. From our entire AATC public affairs team, I'm Captain Kaychelle Trudell. Talk with you next time on the Air Force Starts Here podcast. <laughs>